I envision uh, being able to disciple from the pulpit in such a way that you can take this with you into the world. And so the way I see this happening, I think what best works is if you would invest the time during the week to read through the passage you know that I'm going to preach on. And so this week, my hope would be that some of you spent some time reading through Matthew chapter 22. Uh, I suggest people read it every day. It takes just a couple of minutes, in fact, uh, to read this at a pretty slow pace. You can get through the whole chapter in about five minutes. Some people would say, well, I'm not a great reader. Well, two things. Number one, you can just go online and somebody will read it to you. That's amazing, right? Uh, and then number two, it actually you will get better as you continue to use a habit. So uh, as you read through the Word, though, uh, things that I think is powerful is that the Spirit of God begins to work in you, number one, already. Uh, in addition to that, you're going to start to figure some things out for yourself. And then you're going to come to church and hear me preach. And you're going to be like, oh, I figured that one out. And you're going to understand that you have that ability as a believer to understand God's Word. You're going to start to comprehend that better. So you've read through it through the week, then I'm going to come in, I'm going to preach on that passage, and you're going to gain new insights that you'll also be able to take and then build on the things you've already seen. And then my hope is you would take the next step after that, which is to share conversations with other people about these passages. So that as we are learning these things, we can also then apply them in our own life and in the life of other people. Uh, I truly believe that you guys are capable of teaching your, your friends, your family, your coworkers. For some of you, it'll go even beyond that into study groups, uh, or maybe some of you have a, a future in ministry beyond that that you don't even recognize yet, but God will use this practice of breaking down his word and understanding it so that you can uh, see that that is your future. So that's what we're trying to accomplish. We're using one chapter a week just so it's easy for you to remember where we are each week. So wherever I stopped last week, you just pick it up and read the next chapter. That's the way it's designed right now uh, to do that. So with that, we're in Matthew chapter 22, uh, which is in fact connected to what was going on in Matthew chapter 21. It's going to tell us in that first verse there that Jesus spoke to them again in parables. Well, that them is the religious leaders of the nation of Israel, specifically the chief priests, the elders of the people, which would be the religious leaders, the political leaders, as well as the Pharisees, a group of somewhat religious zealots who have kind of established themselves as a leader of the people, even though God didn't. Now, uh, what Jesus has been doing uh, throughout the course of that last chapter was challenging these Pharisees so that they would recognize that because they've rejected him, because they're not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, that they will not be a part of God's kingdom. So each one of these parables that we saw before was to tell them that. You're going to see the same thing happen in this particular parable that we're going to see here. And then after this parable, those religious leaders, those various groups are going to start questioning Jesus. Uh, I really think up to this point, this first section here is the last week of the life of Jesus. And up to this point, Jesus has been doing the same thing with the leaders that he was doing with the money changers. He overturned the tables. He's destroying the system that they had in place. And that's what he's doing with these leaders. He's overturning their lives. He's helping them understand that they're actually uh, working against the will of God. So that's what he's trying to accomplish. So as we read through, I'll read just kind of this whole section here, the first 14 verses that covers this long parable, and then I'll go back and explain how that parable applies before we look at these various questions that these religious leaders are going to ask Jesus. So, verse 1, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. 
he went out, uh, he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. They were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fattened livestock are all butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business. The rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets, gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to them, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So uh, that's one of the longer parables, actually. It's a pretty long parable as you look at it. So let me just break down just a couple things before I actually explain the parable to you. First thing I want to point out is that the parable is directed at a specific group of people. It says Jesus spoke to them again in parables. He's speaking to a specific group that you can see in the context by just looking back at the last couple of verses. It's the chief priests, it's the Pharisees. He's speaking specifically to them, the religious leaders. So he's directing this parable at somebody. Now a parable is always a situation where you're going to tell a story to explain a truth that's out there. And so that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to help them undersee, understand or see this truth that he wants to bring to them. The truth is going to be concerning what it says there in verse 2, the kingdom of heaven. That's the, the domain is heaven, the place where God is king. So that's what he's explaining to them that this is going to be about. He's going to compare the kingdom of heaven to a story. And then his ultimate conclusion is actually given for us. And I want us to have that in mind as we look back at the parable. He tells us what this parable means in verse 14 in summary form. It's all saying, many are called, but few are chosen. So that's what he's trying to show us with this parable. So let's not get too distracted with the parable and try to take it in a hundred different directions. But let's just follow it through in light of what Jesus tells us it's about. It's about many are called, Few are chosen. So that's kind of the idea that we want to get in this. And again, it's directed most specifically at the religious leaders, although I think it's applicable to all of us. So the wedding story or the parable here that's compared is the idea there is a king who has a son who's getting married and his intent then uh, is to have a wedding feast for his son. Now we have to put a little bit of a cultural context on that because we think of weddings pretty much in the way we think of weddings, right? We think of them all pretty much exactly the same. There's a proposal, then the families get together and they argue about the date. And then once they choose the date, then they argue about the invitations and what those are going to look out. Then you send out the invitation, it has very specific time, date, information, everybody knows. They come to the wedding, they suffer through the wedding just so they can get to the big meal afterwards. That's how we view weddings here in America. It's a little bit different culturally for the Jews. Uh, what they would have would be more of an arranged marriage. 
And so the two fathers would get together and they would make a contract or a deal. And at that point, the two would be legally married, but they wouldn't actually be together yet. There's a time that's about a year long where they're considered, we would call it more like engaged or betrothed or something like that. Uh, But legally, they're actually married. In order to end this, they have to break that contract by a divorce. But they're not actually living together yet. They're not actually engaged in marital activities until the husband, the groom-to-be, is done preparing a house for his bride. And then once all of that work is done in preparation, then they go and they kind of like kidnap her and bring her to this great big wedding feast. So what the families would do is they would announce the wedding has happened, the contract of the wedding has happened, but there wouldn't be a specific date. That would all be based on when all this other stuff got done so that then they could say, okay, now the house is ready and there's a little bit of a surprise to when this happens. That's why it sounds a little bit weird here. He's going to actually send out his slaves to tell people it's time to show up for the wedding. Well, that was a very convenient thing. I wish people would do that for me. They would just send people to me and say, Sean, you have an appointment in 15 minutes. You might want to get ready. But that's not what they're doing here. This was the way that they would announce that the wedding feast is about to happen. What was promised maybe up to a year ago in contractual form is now about to come into reality. So he sends his slaves out to all the invited guests, but none of the invited guests want to come to the party. And they give different types of excuses. It just says some of them just paid no attention and went back to whatever they were doing. Uh, Some of them went back to their business or to farming or whatever it was. They just were too busy. Uh, But it says, and it elevates here quickly, by the way, and the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. Now, this is absurd, right? This wouldn't happen if the king was throwing a wedding feast for his son. People are not going to kill his slaves just simply for wanting to give them a free dinner. So this is uh, an absurd example, but it's trying to illustrate something to the religious leaders. Now, if you've been around much, you can recognize typically in parables when there's a king, the king is God. And when there's the son of the king, it's Jesus And since he's directing this at the religious leaders, I think he's saying specifically to the religious leaders, but maybe to Jews in a greater sense, God's invited you first to the wedding supper of his son. You've been invited to the kingdom of heaven first, but because they've rejected the prophets like John the Baptist and put them to death, and because they've rejected Jesus, and by the way, they're planning to put him to death, you're going to be rejected. And so look, it elevates when they destroy or kill his slaves. Well, the king elevates it a step further than that. The king is enraged in verse 7. He sends his army and destroys those murderers and sets their city on fire. This is just like the worst wedding ever, right? Could you imagine the bride is just in tears? Like, nobody's coming. Everybody's dead. It's horrible. This is like absurd. It's crazy how how fast this elevated. But what is being said to those who were originally invited into the kingdom of heaven because of their rejection of that invitation, that they will be destroyed or killed with fire. Sounds like hell, doesn't it? (laughs) Well, it continues on. The king then calls the remaining slaves, not the dead ones, that wouldn't work, But he says to the rest of his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Well, what made them not worthy? It's actually pretty simple. 
They just didn't show up when invited. The thing that made them not worthy to enter the wedding feast, not worthy in the illustration that's being used here to enter the kingdom of heaven, is when they were invited to come, they said no. And in some cases, they abused and killed the servants of the king. That's what made them not worthy, even though they were invited. So the new plan is to go, therefore, into the highways, and as many as you find there, invite them to the wedding feast. So that's what the slaves do. They go out, they find all kinds of people, they gather them together. Uh, Some of the people are good people, some of the people are evil people, which is interesting, right? But all together, good and evil people are going to be brought in to this particular wedding feast, and the dining hall is now filled with guests. But the awkwardness is not over yet. The king walks into the wedding ceremony, and there's one person there who didn't dress appropriately for the wedding. It's usually me, but that one person is not dressed appropriately for the wedding, and the king once again gets angry, and it says that he's going to throw this guy Uh, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. The king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then again, for many are called, but few are chosen. And so here's the idea. You had one group that was called, but they didn't want to show up. In fact, some of them even persecuted those who invited them to call them into the wedding feast. They were called, they were invited, they didn't want anything to do with it. Well, in the end, they're going to suffer, right? They're going to go through this death. They're going to be put to death in fire. The next group then, there's going to be one guy who actually kind of receives the invitation. He shows up, but he's not dressed appropriately. And then that guy's going to be thrown into fire or thrown into hell. And now this is a little bit tricky here, but essentially all I can get out of this, the thing that I would say is, that even for those who maybe feel like they're doing the right thing by accepting it, if you can tell by looking at them or by the way they act or the things that they do that they're not really fit for the kingdom of heaven, there's going to be a difficulty for them. And I'm not talking about clothing. I'm talking about the attitude in their heart, that this guy is showing up for the wedding feast of the king. This isn't just some random wedding feast, by the way. This isn't just like your third cousin twice removed is getting, wedded, getting married and your mom's just like, you have to be there. This is the king has invited you to his son's wedding. Like, this is a big deal. If you show up in bib overalls, people are going to notice. Like, you're going to get a suit. This is the king's son's wedding. This is a big deal. It just shows kind of that nonchalantness in the attitude. Now, when we put this into that final thought there, for many are called, but few are chosen, I want us to be reminded of the many are called piece of this. See, some people want to look at this and they want to say this is about Calvinism or Arminianism or predestination or free will. Uh, It's beyond that. This is about the heart of God calling many. We see in Ezekiel 33, 11, we see it in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that God doesn't desire that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's God's desire. He casts out the invitation to his kingdom far and wide. But even with his invitation, there's a responsibility on the hearer of that invitation to respond to it. Both to receive the invitation, but then to act like somebody who's been invited to the kingdom of heaven. 
that there would be some sort of change of attitude that would follow it. Many are called, but few are chosen. We see a brief picture of this, by the way, in the book of Revelation. In chapter 19, verse 9, it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I believe all of this is pointing towards that. But first, the religious leaders, the Jews, were called. And they rejected Jesus. And because of that rejection of Jesus, they're not going to be able to enter into God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And then you have anybody, good or evil, being called. Thankfully for us, right? Anybody. Good or evil is called into the kingdom of God. And all they have to do is respond to the invitation and then live like people who've been called by God. There should be some sort of change. You shouldn't look like you looked before is the way I would say that. Well, of course, the religious leaders recognize that he's talking about them. They've been trying to get rid of him for a while. Earlier in the book, it said they wanted to destroy him. At the end of chapter 1, it said they were looking for ways to seize him, but they were afraid of the people. Time and time again, they would have these confrontations with Jesus, and he would consistently make them look a little bit foolish, and the crowds wouldn't get less attracted to him. No, the crowds were getting more and more excited about him. So they've decided now to take a different tact as they go at Jesus. In this case, since they can't get him on the religious questions, they're going to try to get him with the political questions. And can I just say, if Satan wants to divide the body of Christ, politics is a great way for him to do it, right? That's certainly what's going to happen here. Look what happens in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one. For you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said to them, uh, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. Well, we need another brief history lesson here to understand what's going on. Uh, So it's going to be two groups working together. First of all, the Pharisees, we've met them before. Uh, they're, They're legalists, but they're elitists in that they believe they're basically the only ones that are following the law, and they weigh these people down with heavy burdens that go beyond the things that God had asked them to do. The second group is more interesting. They're what's called the Herodians. Uh, and it just really means that they're followers of Herod. But it's a political party of sorts. So the nation of Israel uh, at different times had different leadership um, as they were under the Roman conquerors. Again, Israel at this time is a conquered nation. They have the Roman conquerors who the Jews were terribly offended by because they weren't Jews, because they didn't follow the things after God, because they had all kinds of gods that they worshipped. There were tons of reasons why they didn't like the Romans. But the Herodians were interesting in that at one point the Romans, whether for political reasons or whatever, they decided to uh, uh, put somebody in charge of this region where Israel is, who was himself at least partially Jewish and who had a a little bit of an understanding of Judaism. 
So this particular political party, the Herodians, uh, they decided that the best thing from Israel was to break away from what the Maccabeans were doing, the previous rulers, who were constantly revolting and trying to challenge the Romans in that sense. They said, let's do this differently. We've got a guy that at least kind of has our attention, that, that at least pretends to be a little bit Jewish, and it's going to work in their favor. He's building in this ginormous temple. This amazing temple, Herod's temple, is being built at this time while all of this is happening. So to a certain extent, it's starting to work. Their temple is being restored that had been destroyed so long ago. But um, the Herodians, though, were just trying to make peace by saying to themselves, all right, because this guy has a little bit of Jewishness in him, We'll just say we're following him and forget the fact that the, the, the Roman emperor is over him, that Caesar is above him. And so in that way, it kind of cooled things down a little bit for them. What's interesting in this is the Pharisees and the Herodians were not friends. These two groups did not really get along. They had differences of opinion. The Pharisees, again, uh, were more purists. They wanted everything to be pure and perfect and just the way that God had intended. And so there should be a king in Israel, which is not going to be allowed by the Romans. It just wasn't going to happen. So they're actually at odds with each other, but it's interesting they come together to bring this. Another interesting thing is the Pharisees themselves don't come this time. They send their disciples. And I think it's just a cowardly act because, number one, they keep getting defeated by Jesus. And number two, they don't want to be seen with the Herodians. So they're going to come and they're going to ask Jesus a purely political question about taxes. And the question is, is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar? Now, they think they've trapped him because if Jesus says yes, that's going to make all the religious elitists, the purists mad. If he says no, then that's going to make all the Herodians mad. They're trying to put him in a no-win situation. So Jesus being uh, wonderfully smart and amazing, right, because he's God and all, uh, he perceives in verse 18 their malice and asks them this question, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Which uh, we could spend a lot of time on the idea of hypocrisy, and in fact we will next week, because in chapter 23, verse 13 through 33, Jesus is going to like eight different times say, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, and then tell them why they're hypocrites. So we'll spend a lot of time on hypocrisy next week, but he recognizes their malice the wickedness of their heart, and he recognizes their hypocrisy, but he's going to answer their question. He says this, show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And then he said, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And the things to God that are God's. Now, of course, I envision this very dramatic because I watch a lot of TV. And so they hand him the coin and he looks at it and then he flips it back to him. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. I don't know. That's how I see it. But it's really a great answer for a couple of reasons. The first reason it's a great answer is it kind of appeases both sides. Let me explain how. For the Herodians, they would say, we want to pay the poll tax, which in and of itself was an excessive tax. See, there was already a tax on the property, but the Romans were thinking to themselves, well, we're only getting money from people that own property. We want to get money from people who don't own property. So a poll tax was a census tax. So every seven years, they would go and they would count everybody, and everybody they counted had to pay a denarius. And so they collected now the property tax they already got, plus the census or the poll tax, 
And they got that even from the people who didn't own property. So it's more money for them. It's just a more efficient way for them to rob the people, right? So when he looks then at the coin and sees Caesar's face on it, and they all agree, yeah, this is Caesar. It's his likeness. It's his inscription. Pay the tax. The Herodians are happy. But what's great is those who were offended by it would say, well, I don't want that filthy Roman money either. So I might as well give them that. It's just filthy Roman money. It's got the image of Caesar on it. It is by nature idolatry. That's the issue at heart there. So both sides can walk away and go, I think this works for us. But he says something even more powerful after that. It's not just render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Well, what in this world is an image bearer of God? It's us. We were created in the image of God. So yeah, give to this world, give to Caesar the things that are his, but give to God what belongs to him, and we're created in his image. We belong to God. It's time for them and for us to start living like that's true. It's a great way for him to answer that question. Well, the next question comes from another group on that same day. Um, some uh, Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brothers as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers with us. The first married and died having no children, left his wife to his brother. So also the second, the third, down to the seventh, last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. But Jesus answered and said to them, You're mistaken, not understanding the scripture nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished. Well, the crowds are having a great day because in verse 22, it said the crowds were amazed. And now in verse 33, the crowds are astonished. Uh, but this next group, the Sadducees, are coming to challenge Jesus. This is another religious sect. Uh, this is like a, a different denomination. They're Jewish people, but their understanding of who God is is different uh, than the Pharisees, for instance, or some of the other Jewish people that were out there. And specifically, Matthew mentions one particular difference is they say there's no such thing as the resurrection. They don't believe in the resurrection and the dead. In fact, in Acts chapter 23, we also find out because of that, they don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the spirit. Uh, to them, there's basically just like God created we came to life, we live for God, and when we die, that's the end of it, which is sad, you see, because they're the Sadducees. That's not where they got the name. Anyway, they're going to ask him a question, and it's based on an Old Testament law that was designed really to be a help to a widow. Uh, in the Old Testament law, in the Old Testament, you'll find uh, this law that basically says if you marry somebody, so you have a man and a woman, and they get married. And the man dies before they can have children. This widow is left by herself. She no longer has a husband to care for her. She has no children to care for her. She's just all by herself. 
So in order to provide for her, and by the way, culturally at that time, it would have been impossible for her to even really make a living. It wasn't like she could just go down to the Walmart distribution center and say, I need a job. That, that wasn't allowed for her as a woman. So she had no provision for her. So God made provision by saying, if that were happening, then that dead guy's brother is supposed to marry her and take care of her. And so they set up this weird scenario. I call it one bride for seven brothers instead of seven brides for seven brothers. They set up this weird scenario where this happens to one poor woman seven times. Most freaky about this is nobody questions the woman how seven of her husbands died. That's weird to me, right? But anyway, basically, husband number one dies, she gets passed to number two, number two dies, passed number three, all the way down to the seventh husband, and then finally, she dies. And they bring this question, who's she married to in the resurrection? Well, you can already tell it's an odd question, right? It's odd for a couple of reasons. Number one, because, you know, you could really envision like a weird moment in heaven when she gets up there and there's seven husbands waiting for her and she has some explaining to do, right? So it could be awkward like that. But the other reason it's weird is it says that they don't believe in the resurrection. You see, the question about marriage isn't really the question. They're trying to, again, divide the crowd, trying to get Jesus to be on either their side or the Pharisees' side with the question of resurrection. Now, they might think that he's going to say there is no resurrection in case they'll say, yippee, he's one of us, and now all the Pharisees and a lot of the Jews would have been angry. But if he says there is a resurrection, now they're going to be upset at him. So once again, that was interesting, once again, Jesus now has to answer this question, um, and it killed my slides all at the same time. Cool. Uh, Jesus then has to answer this question for them uh, in such a way that shows his wisdom. And so here's how he answers it, uh, which I, I love the answer. You are mistaken not understanding the scriptures or the power of God. First of all, he's got to get a dig in at him. You, you don't even understand the word. And you certainly don't understand the power of God. So he begins to answer this idea about the marriage. In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So the first thing he says is let's deal with the marriage. Marriage ends at death. Now, for some of you, that was already your escape clause, right? You're already thinking about it. Hmm, I know how to get out of this, right? Don't do that. That's bad. But for some of us, like I happen to actually enjoy my wife, <laughs> like I really do. And so for me, it's actually a little depressing to think this all comes to an end, but it's what we agreed to in our wedding vows, till death do we part, right? That's why that's in our marriage vows, because it's a proper understanding of the scripture that there is no marriage. Now, I don't think it's not that you won't see your spouse in heaven. Well, I don't know your spouse, maybe you won't. If your spouse is a believer... <laughs> I'm not saying you won't see your spouse in heaven, but you won't be married to them in heaven because that's not really what heaven's for. Heaven is about your restoration and relationship to God. It's your time to be in relationship to God for all eternity. It's different. It's not what we think of like here on earth, right? So uh, in the resurrection, there is no marriage. That's the point he's trying to make. But he goes on to answer what was their real question, the question they were too afraid to just ask outright in verse 31. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. 
He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. So Jesus is going to quote the scripture back to them. He quotes out of Exodus chapter 3, 6, which is important to understand when that was. It was after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead. So here's these three dead guys, and God speaking says that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, as Jesus said, he's not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living. And by saying that, he's saying those guys are living in the resurrection with God. It's important for us to realize that that's a key thing for us as believers. The afterlife for us, it's important. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, if there is no resurrection, then Christ wasn't raised from the dead. And if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, we're still in our sins. And if we're still in our sins, we are to be pitied because we believe and teach that he is resurrected. Resurrection is a key part of what we understand as believers. So here now the crowds, hearing him answer this question, they're astonished at the way he teaches. And what are they going to say to it? They would have to somehow argue with Jesus that these guys weren't dead when God said that he was the dead or God of these three dead guys, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we continue on now, the Sadducees being put away, the Pharisees decide they want to take another swing at it. Uh, And again, they're going to do it in somewhat of a cowardly way. We look here in verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, this is actually one of my favorite sections in the entire Bible. I think this particular section in Scripture does two very powerful things for us. Number one, it gives us a lens through which we can interpret all of Scripture. Number two, it gives us a very practical application on how we're supposed to live our life as believers. So the question that is going to be brought by the Pharisees, and of course they're going to do it in a cowardly way, they're going to send a lawyer, right? Because they just keep getting beat by this guy. So they find a Pharisee who happens to be a lawyer. That's not that I don't like lawyers. It's just that they're really good at arguing, right? So they send kind of a a pro in to deal with him and ask him this question. And the question is, which is the great commandment in the law? And of course, they think they know the answer, right? Like they came to him, they wouldn't ask the question if they didn't already know. And I think they actually have the right answer. I just think they're shocked when Jesus gets it right. And so the right answer is a quote from Jesus. And here he quotes the scriptures. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's known as the Shema. And Jews recite it daily. And in fact, they have it. You'll sometimes find it, even sometimes at Jewish houses, you'll find that they'll have this little thing next to their door or sometimes on their door. And if you open that up, you can pull out a little piece of paper. And inside there, it's these words. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6. 
It's just a reminder for them. And they're even told in that passage that they're supposed to talk about this throughout the day. When they lie down, when they sit up, and as they go about their day, that they're supposed to talk with their children about this, that they're supposed to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their mind. But Jesus goes a step further. He says, I'm not going to just give you the first one. I'm going to give you the bonus one. I'm going to give you the second greatest commandment. And that is... Verse 39, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. A quote from Luke, or I'm sorry, from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And that's where he makes this point that on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And this is important for us to recognize. The whole law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament, are dependent on these two concepts, loving God and loving your neighbor. If you understand that, then you can run any passage in the Old Testament through those two concepts and ask yourself this question, is this designed to help me love God more or to love my neighbor more or maybe both? I think about the Ten Commandments first. No other gods before me. That's about loving God more. How about thou shalt not lie? That's about loving your neighbor. It really helps you kind of take the Scriptures all in context. And even when you think about all the Old Testament prophets, what are they screaming about? What are they so upset about? It's a people who've rejected God. And all of the things and all the calamities that they talk about were all designed to get the people to return to loving God. That's what it's all about. And I would say it's what the whole New Testament is about as well, that it would come down to directing us to loving God more and loving people more, which means we can now think through our life through those same two lenses. In my life, my primary thing is to love God and to love others. And I can actually run different things that I do in my life through that. I can think through those things through that particular lens as I'm trying to make decisions. Should I punch this guy in the face that cut me off or not? Right? Like, pretty obvious one, right? Even think of it in these terms. Let's say you're trying to get a new job. Now, some people might look at that. They're going to come to different answers, but you're looking at this job. Some people as a believer might be able to look at that and say, look, in doing this job, I'm going to be serving other people. Therefore, I can fulfill this commandment to love my neighbor. But even if that job isn't about serving other people, you can still make the determination, in this job that I have, I can love the people that I work with. It's the way we approach things. It's the approach that should be kind of the basis for our life. I would even go a step further that in the work that we do, and it doesn't matter what that work is, that we get to love God in the presence of other people as we work by the way that we hold ourselves, the way we represent Him and the things we do, the things we say, we represent Him, but it's an act of worship when we work, expressed towards God. And I would say it doesn't just stop with work. It's not just in your homes. Please, I'm begging you, it's in your politics. All of these things should be run through these two concepts, that this is about loving God or loving others more. 
And all of it, I think, is based on that. All of the law and the prophets, all of the scripture, but also all of our life. It should be a key to what we think and to what we do. Now, I'm not saying if everybody runs through those same two lenses, they're going to come to the exact same two conclusions because everybody's in a different set of circumstances. That's going to look different at different times in history. It's going to look different in different cultures. It's going to look different in political systems that are different. But in the midst of all of that, those should be the things that we remind ourselves over and over and over again. How do we represent or how do I represent God with this particular political decision that I'm making? And how can I best love my neighbor through this? And again, I just think there's a wide variety of how those things will work out. And it's upsetting uh, when we can't get to the heart of that issue. To just let people come to those conclusions and trust them that that's their mind saying this is the best way to do that. It's an interesting thing that we just can't get our heads wrapped around that. But this should be who we are, people who love God and people who love our neighbor. It should be just the key to who we are. Well, there's one, less, less, one last question to be asked. This time Jesus is going to ask the question. It's here in verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath my feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. So now Jesus is going to be the one asking the question. In this case, the question is pretty simple. It's going to actually be two questions, but it's the first part of it is speaking to the Pharisees. He says, uh, what do you think the Christ, so speaking of the Messiah that they're all waiting for, whose son is he? Well, they're going to answer the right biblical Sunday school, but also the right answer, right? He is the son of David. Now, why is that important here? You have to remember what has happened at the end of this book here. As we've gotten to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has started calling himself the Son of David. And then as he marched into Jerusalem in chapter 21 last week, the crowds were shouting out to him, Hosanna, save now, Son of David. And so we saw that back in chapter 21. And the Pharisees were offended by this. The religious leaders were offended by this. And they tried to convince Jesus to tell his followers to stop calling him the son of David. See, that phrase son of David is recognized by them as a claim to be the Messiah. And Jesus has been claiming to be the Messiah. But he's going to take it a step further here. Uh, as he asked the first question, the Christ whose son is he? They answer the son of David. He's asking a follow-up question that's going to point out something that they're missing or not quite understanding about who the son of David was. In verse 43, he said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? And then he quotes Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So he's now taking it a step further. He's saying, okay, you rightly understand that the Messiah, the Christ, is the son of David, that that's the title for him. 
And now they should see clearly, by the way, that Jesus has been receiving that title in worship and using that title of himself. So it should be clear to the Pharisees that Jesus is claiming, making a very specific claim that he is the Messiah. But he takes it a step further. He wants to show them something more. He wants to show them, I believe, that the son of David, the Messiah, is also the Lord God. And he does that with this situation here in Psalm 110. So he tells them, how does David in the Spirit say, or how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Uh, What he's saying is, and their understanding of the Scripture would be, that God inspired David to write Psalm 110. So when David is inspired by God to write this, this is not just David, but this is God himself saying this. So David writing this on behalf of God says the Lord, which everybody would recognize at that point is pointing towards God, said to my, that's David, Lord. So it's like God has said to himself, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So in other words, they rightly understood that David would have somebody in his lineage who would be the Messiah, the son of David would be the Messiah. So somebody who was related to David would be in that position. What they didn't understand is that that person would at the very least be greater than David which means Jesus is claiming to be greater than David. But I think Jesus is actually going a step further than that by making an exclusive claim here that he's not just the son of David, that he is the Lord who is God. That's what I think Jesus is saying there. Now, some people uh, might not uh, enjoy that as much in this passage, but it's certainly clear throughout the New Testament that Jesus does make claims to being God. It's an important part of what we believe, but I think that's actually what he's trying to say here. But at the very least, at the very least, Jesus is claiming that he's not just the Messiah, he's greater than King David. And at this point, nobody's going to answer or ask him any questions anymore because they can't argue with him or the scriptures. It's just things that they had missed or hadn't seen or didn't understand, and he's expressing to them in such a way that they should understand them. Now, we want to put all of this back together. This will just take a minute, but I want us to put all of this back together. At the beginning, it started with, many are called to the son's wedding feast. Many are invited to, specifically, it says, the kingdom of heaven. But only those who receive, who respond to that invitation, are worthy. And amongst those who respond, they should actually act like people who are part of the kingdom of heaven or who are going to the kingdom of heaven. And I think Jesus defined that for us in loving God and loving your neighbor. I think for us, we have to get to this point where we recognize that the invitation has to be accepted on our part, and then we have to live like we're his people. Those are the two things that have to come together in the life of the believer. So we're going to go ahead and close in worship, but I'll just say this. The invitation is this. Jesus Christ died for your sins. 
so that you can be reconciled to God. You can accept that invitation by calling him Lord, by giving him lordship or authority over your life. If you haven't done that, you're in a position where you will be destroyed by God because you're not worthy of his kingdom, because you refused his invitation. And if you have accepted the invitation, I would say take one step further and start living like a people or a person who's received him and who's been accepted into his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thankful for a chance today to be in Matthew chapter 22 and so thankful for how you've allowed your word to speak to us as a church over the years. Lord, I know for myself I struggled with portions of this passage this week, just really examining myself, really asking myself the question, if, if I'm really somebody who looks forward to the things of heaven, or if I love the things of this world a little bit too much. Lord, for me personally, I would ask that you would not allow Just don't allow me to get complacent in this world. Give me in my heart a desire to be with you eternally in heaven. I would pray that for everyone here today as well. And then, Lord, help us to match up to that. Father, we want to surrender everything we have to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.